Okay, welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have conversations with individuals who are building accessible businesses, advocating for inclusion, or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but give them a platform to amplify their voice so we can create a more accessible world. Today, we are joined by Tommy Trout, an award-winning leader in the inclusive fitness space, notably for his four-purpose enterprise, WeFlex. WeFlex is an Australian disability service provider connecting people with a disability to mainstream fitness professionals, to whom it also educates on inclusive practices. Tommy is a qualified personal trainer and educator utilizing 18 years of experience in the sector from corrections, AOD, suicide prevention, disability care, as well as experience of having family with disability. He's now running an agency, Inclusive AF, which works to increase accessibility and inclusivity of health and fitness services. Tommy, thanks for joining me today. Couldn't have said it better myself. Lovely day. <laughs> All right. Um, let's maybe start with what first got you into the space that we'll just coin as inclusive fitness. Uh, what were your first influences and motivations to do so? Oh, obviously, just the lust for money and fame um, was the main. Exactly. I'm with you. <laughs> so I think, apologies in advance for my accent. Um, so I, I guess we're... The, the where I keep coming back to and where it started for me was I was working in disability support and I was given a client file. The client file just had three labels. It was just autistic, psychotic, antisocial. And like, go, go work with them. And that's all I knew about them. Um, and so I'm in my early 20s at the time, I'd go out there kind of terrified because those are big words, especially for someone with limited exposure to it. Um, and I was just preparing for the worst and then I met the nicest guy ever. But I also realized that this guy was completely isolated in his home. He only ever left his apartment twice a week. That was once to go to groceries, once to go to the center that I worked out of. And nobody in his life asked him how he was that wasn't paid to ask him that. You know, no family, no friends. And a uh, little known fact is that a lot of antipsychotic medication leads to massive weight gain uh, really quickly as well. It's pretty amazing. And he was putting on a lot of weight that was making him pretty miserable. And so on a whim, I sort of said, look, let's go. How about we just go to the gym? There's one down the road. It's, you know where it is. It's easy to get to. He agreed. Took a little prompting, but we got there. And I just watched this guy just love it. Just get involved in it and just became part of the this became part of the furniture with everybody else at the gym um they actually were at a point where they refused to accept his money and i forced him to give it because you have to take ownership over it and before i knew it i had eight people with disabilities pretty severe disabilities in that gym training together um i didn't know what i was doing you know i i, I was in my early 20s if it wasn't like bench press and bicep curls i don't think i understood it what all the other equipment was but you know I sort of was just there and just in that moment, I was just looking around at all these guys just working out, enjoying it, part of just a regular gym. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, what was the uh, what was the response that maybe the gym owners had or maybe even the rest of their client base had to this influx of people with disabilities in their space influx. so um this is a little bit before sort of social media wasn't then what it is today um so the owner was a little bit nervous about it but trusted that i'd be there the whole time but within one session he realized that it was you couldn't almost tell like he was like oh no one cares and then what happened was over time is that you know um a lot of the clientele at the gym just loved the guys and it actually became a struggle because I had to keep breaking up conversations for them to get their workouts done. Um, you know, and it was just funny. Like, I remember I was watching this uh, this very little petite female that I was working with talking to this, this massive bodybuilder. And I was like, oh, God, what's going to happen? And I walked over and he's just congratulating her on how good she's doing at the moment. And he's been keeping an eye on them all and thinks it's great. And I was like, how good is this? It's just including oh, yeah. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not a special gym. This is just in the mainstream and yeah for them you know for a lot of people you know people with autism especially you know you can have a very small world where you only have a few places where you feel safe where you know how to get to it you can, can regulate yourself in it by increasing that that uh, range and adding a new place where they can be at home and feel good you're making their world just so much bigger which is awesome um and if you can do that and also give them the benefits of regular exercise it's just a win-win for me. So, yeah, yeah. Part of that, like normalizing disability, you mentioned the bodybuilder and the petite female. It's like shared interest in recreation. Like that, that bodybuilder had probably no experience with disability. He was just like, "Oh, this is person that's crushing it. We have similar interests. I'm gonna have a conversation with them." So sometimes it's like, unless you create the environment, 
those interactions are never going to happen but they always happen around like shared interest yeah and it's just and it's just yeah absolutely um and what was great is that you know I, i'm a firm believer that there's obviously we know that social health is a real thing being in community is good for your health and i believe that you can still get the benefits of that even if you're not talking directly with people but you're just in the same room as them doing the same activities as them you can still get that social benefit I mean, you know what I mean? And so being able to provide that, I think, is really important too. So it's funny, a lot of them come for the exercise, but they stay for the community, is what I've learned. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned even that, like, the gym owner offered for that individual to train for free, but you were adamant that they continued to pay. Yeah. This is actually something I was writing about this morning, so it's kind of top of mind. Should programs for people with disabilities be free and if not, what is the unintended harm of uh, everything disability and inclusion oriented being free? It, it's tough because the, the, the tight ass of me wants to say everything should be free. But mm -hmm. I think, though, for me, it's about ownership and also it's about creating a business case for inclusion in gyms as well. Um, what my experience has been is that if, Brendan, if you're doing something for me for free, but then as a business owner, other competing priorities that do pay you money come up. I'm probably going to be the first thing that you have to drop, right? Mm -hmm. Not because you want to, but because you just have an economic imperative to. I don't want that for people with disabilities, and I don't want that for the gym. I want the gym to be able to make money with clients by providing great service to them. I want people with disabilities to be customers with disabilities, so that's my new term now is quads. Um, I want them to be treated as customers. That way they're always right, and that way gyms have an incentive to tailor and adapt to them but the point that I gave to the guy at the time when it, it first happened is I said, mate, you're not a charity case. You've got, it's, it's, three, it's $2, it's a gold coin in Australia. You can afford it, take some ownership, invest in yourself. Um, you're not a charity case. And that was sort of the rule. So that's yeah. my view. Um, I think that what I want, and, but it's also different here in, in Australia. So we've got a different system at the moment called the NDIS where there's a bit more consumer power for people with disabilities to access a government scheme that gives them funding to fund other services. So, mm -hmm. rather. Yeah, I like that you said that it gives gyms an incentive to adapt as well. It's like, like you mentioned, it, it's hard sometimes for maybe businesses to see the perceived value if they're investing a lot in modifications, accessibility without much ROI, just from a straight business standpoint. But we're not expecting gyms to make sacrifices socioeconomically where asking for them to see this large consumer base that uh, is relatively untapped probably not competing with a bunch of other gyms to train people with disabilities like it's a way to stand out in the marketplace so my, my experience is so reflex itself we've got hundreds of clients with disability across australia operating out of mainstream gyms as well as parks and homes um, we've never received a complaint from a gym about the effect that having a person with a disability in the gym is having on them. Um, yeah. We've had quite a few people actually say, how do I go more full-time in this because I really enjoy it? But the big issue or the, the big benefit, and I'm sure you can speak to it as well at AdaptX, is that a lot of the clientele want to train during the day when there's so off-peak hours for a personal trainer. You're busy before work, you're busy after work, nine to five, you're a bit more flat, maybe except lunch. Our experience has been is that most clients with disability want to go Tuesday 10 a.m., Wednesday 2 p.m. when it's downtime. The gym's a little bit less empty, a bit more empty. Um, PTs are typically less booked out. So all you're doing is supplementing your existing income with more clients. And the other thing is that, you know, you don't have to invest tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to become accessible. 2% of people with disability are like we're in a wheelchair up here. Like, it's a lot of it, you know, and it's so accessibility is actually not even a scale, you know what I mean? It's a bit of a galaxy, but a lot of people don't need you to be accessible, they just need you to be inclusive and work it out with them, um, I think. So, yeah, there's a huge opportunity for gym owners to get in it. Yeah, yeah well, we say you're not expected to have all the answers regarding accessibility, but you are expected to care enough to kind of find them. Uh, but that often comes through, like, the conversations that you have with prospective clients. So Yeah, and so our experience has been is that the, so one of the common misconceptions we had here was, oh, people with disabilities don't go to the gym because they can't afford it, right? Um, and there is absolutely socioeconomic realities of having a disability, ability to work, living on government schemes and the rest of it. But 
we at Weflex did tons of co-design sessions, which is where basically all I did for three years is sit down with people with disabilities in groups and it's one-on-one -on -one and ask them dumb questions about everything. And the idea of it being too expensive almost never came up. In fact, what happened is, is that they don't go to the gym because the gym's not going to be able to meet their needs. The gym isn't tailoring to meet their needs because the person with a disability isn't a customer, right? So it's a bit of that stalemate. And so it's about just bringing the people in who can train straight away in, the gym gets a taste of it, then they sort of can create a little bit more accessibility, a little bit more inclusiveness and just build it up over time as they begin to tailor and adapt to new clients. But the idea that you have to be ready to handle every single possible client that can come through the door day one is a misconception, I think, um, and not necessary yeah. either. Yeah, my friend Eric Kondo calls that like incremental universal design. Like if you're running a business, you start with lowest hanging, lowest support needs, and then kind of work up, okay, you can start to accommodate an above knee amputee, what's next? And you just kind of stack. So from that lens, did you, when you were making the WeFlex Academy and the resources, what did you start with? So we started with a, so we started with a co-design session, which was, I made every mistake you can make starting a business, but in this one, I did a co-design session and it was like, this is for just the general principles, like just what's the 101, teaching how to suck eggs sort of stuff. Um, and what happened was is we got a bunch of people with disabilities, but we got very different disabilities in the room. And the issue was that we had some people with wheelchairs who were neurotypical, some people with learning disabilities, some people with intellectual disabilities, and it was almost impossible to keep them on the same page the entire time. So it was a bit of, bit, bit of chaos. Um, but what we wanted to do though, is just get a sense from them, like what do, you actually, what do you actually care about in your personal trainer, especially in the first session, like, what is the fastest way you're going to sign off on someone as being good? How, what, what are the kind of behaviors or traits or things that you experience that make you go, I'm never talking to this person ever again. And you know, the big, the big parts of it, like they just want someone who's just willing to adapt, someone who's good at communication, someone who's patient and just is happy to work with them. Um, the standards were pretty low, which is, I guess, a good thing. Um, so we started with disability inclusion principles and then I wanted to go into just disabilities. I wanted to start in autism because I've got family, my brother and my dad both on the spectrum. And I was talking to a clinician who goes, you're going about it wrong. You shouldn't look at it as disabilities because um, that doesn't tell you an awful lot. Instead, look at support needs. So we actually then pivoted completely and all our academy was based on support needs instead. So the example is, is that I'd say, hey, Brandon, I've got a client, he's autistic, go work with him. You, that gives you no information and you have other clients on the spectrum maybe but that's only tells you about them not about this new client instead i'd say hey brennan i've got a client they've got sensory needs and they've got behavioral needs these are what they are here's training on those two things now go work with the client that puts you in a better position to succeed but on top of that you're now looking at the client not as someone with a disability you're not looking at them as a label as autistic you're looking at them as a client with needs like you would every and any client you would ever have. Like you would someone who's pregnant, someone with a bad knee, bad back, older, younger, first time. You're looking at them through needs. So we broke it up in the needs and that absolutely transformed the way that our PTs were able to engage. But it also just led to better service because a lot of the times courses on disability are like the stats, the uh, criteria for diagnostics or whatever doesn't help you when the client's you know, having a massive behavior of concern and throwing weights around the gym, or is completely frozen up in a section of the gym. Doesn't tell you what to do. And so we wanted uh, our, our sort of work to be really targeted to what they're actually going to encounter in a workout. And everything we did was both clinically signed off, but also co-designed by people with that experience. So we had autistic people telling us what to teach in autism in their autistic support needs courses. We have people who are blind and low vision teaching us about that, deaf, hard of hearing about that. That's how we built it out. That's what I've always appreciated when we first had our initial conversation a couple of years ago. You kind of um, turned me on to that perspective in a way that, like, my course starts by saying understand the diagnosis but train the individual and i'm saying what you're saying like the diagnosis doesn't really tell you much down syndrome doesn't tell you much it may be maybe universal hypermobility universal language um differences but at the end of the day it exists on a spectrum not only autism exists on a spectrum pretty much any condition does in the same way that 
any 45 year old male does it's like the the diagnosis or the the criteria doesn't really tell you as much as that initial session does so it's like because uh, people will ask for assessments like oh what do you what do you do for an assessment with someone with a disability I'm like uh, it's relatively informal you got to figure out what they like what they want what they like what environment they're comfortable in and then you can design it based on that you're not measuring range of motion, measuring things in that first session, you're making sure they come back for the second? It's all about this. You can't do anything in, in one session, right? So yeah. the attitude we had and what we've always taught is that, look, assessments can take place, but, you know, for some clients on the spectrum, it could take four workouts to get them in the room. It could take them five workouts to touch a weight, let alone lift it. You know, like you're working on their schedule. Um, and the priority should be around building rapport and building trust and building an understanding of your client. The assessments will come. You're not. Chances are, you're not going to get a client with significant disability that's also an elite athlete and really needs to achieve to shave off, you know, 0.5 seconds on their 40 time. They're probably there and they don't know how to do a squat or a push up. They've never been to a gym before. You're working with the basics. You like so technical skills are really important to a degree, but they need to be coupled with really strong soft skills, where you can make sure that the client enjoys it wants to come back, has great fundamentals, and is also being coached on how to behave in a gym or in a fitness setting, that's not going to make them stand out or be a pariah either. So a lot of it is around rules, like you have to wait your turn, you have to do this. That's where a lot of the stuff comes in, where you're sort of putting, setting them up to succeed. You're an ambassador for the fitness industry and making them fall in love with it. Um, you know, as a PT, I'm pretty poor technically. Like I'm a great fun foundations guy, but no athlete's ever going to come to me for help. But I'm really good at getting people who have zero idea and are maybe scared of the concept to fall in love with it, have really good fundamentals, know how to behave in the gym, and then sort of graduate on to maybe more capable PTs. But that's where most of the clients are coming from. Is like they're scared, they're anxious, they've never been there before. They don't. You don't see many gyms advertising disability. You don't see people in wheelchairs and marketing campaigns for any fitness brands. Or if they do, it's either Inspiration Porn or Paralympics. Like that's who's coming through the door. And so those soft skills are just vital to just get them to fall in love with it and come back. How would you define inclusion? Um, I think it's treating everyone the exact same way unless there's a reason not to. And that's where the debate is, is that is there a reason why you're treating these people these way? And is it a good reason? So for an example would be is that a lot of the times you see people to talk about their clients and then say they've got a disability. Why do you have to say that? Like, we all have conditions. You don't say, oh, this is my mate there, he's got a bad knee. So why is it that because we've got a disability, you do need to say that? It's an it's a inconsistently applied rule. So for me, inclusion is about treating everyone the same unless you have a good reason not to. And my job is to challenge people on why they think it's a good reason to do certain things. Um, the, the only, I guess, maybe counterpoint to that, the example of, like, specifying that it's someone with a disability, and obviously... When I'm introducing someone at my gym, it's not like, here's Owen, he has spastic paraplegia. But it's like, when you're specifying, or when you're marketing to the population, you need to be able to demonstrate that you work with disability. So it's like that line between not overemphasizing disability, but also demonstrating that you are inclusive and welcoming. And I'd say that's a good reason to do that. Right? Yeah. That's all, but it's also not because it's all you're doing is you're advertising to a market, which you should be doing, right? And so that's totally fine. Um, you know, I actually wrote a, I actually just wrote an article and it's called, I think, Passion is Overrated in this industry. So a lot of the times people are just like, the most important thing is passion. And I've always said, no, the most important thing is actually just professionalism, quality service, quality care. Um, you know, like that's the foundations of what clients come to expect. Like, they don't need you necessarily to be super passionate about everything that they're doing. You just need to provide good service. Because just because you're passionate doesn't mean you're good at it, right? Or that you have healthy attitudes and beliefs towards it either. And it's not about you or your passions. It's about them and their outcomes. And that requires quality service and professionalism. Is the passion not necessarily applicable to the consumer, but is passion... A for inclusion essential to the professional? I don't know. Like, I think 
it, it, it can't, I think passion's a type of fuel, but not everybody has the same kind of fuel. Like, if, if there's a business owner who owns a gym and they're trying to make more money and they decide they're going to open up to people with disabilities, they're not passionate about it, but they treat the customer with respect, they do great work, they make sure everything is on the level and done properly. I don't think that's a bad thing. And I don't think that, and I don't think many, like, again, with all the co-design sessions, passion never came up. None of them said they have to really be in this for the right reasons and they better be passionate about my squats. Like, no, they're like, just make sure they do the right thing with me and they treat me well. Yeah, don't know. And it could come down to semantics on the word passion, but for me, it's like, I don't know that you have to be quote unquote passionate to provide a professional level of care. Um, but a lot of people do feel like being passionate is a substitute, and I don't think so. Yeah, I agree with that because I, I feel like sometimes I see people that are well-intentioned working with disabilities because they care about disability, but it's not the best training. No. And I don't, I don't always love that. So that's where, like, your comment at professionalism and good service is obviously addressing that portion. But I feel like a curmudgeon all the time because I'm like, oh, that, that's, like, that's not good. Everyone's applauding it, but that's not really a good squat or that's not a good push-up. Like, that person could do better. So it's like, I guess, how do you find the, the balance between holding to a high standard while also appreciating effort? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's just your inner coach speaking there, Brandon. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> is, a, uh, is a gym that only trains people with disabilities inclusive? No, I think it's about... Uh, I think so. Um, would you turn someone away if they didn't have a disability? Not me, but I'm saying my my program isn't only for people with disabilities. But if there's if there's a gym that says we train people with autism and that's all they do, is that technically inclusive? If they say no to other people, then no, it's not right. Yeah. As in, it's it's okay to it's 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 okay to be um, specialized for sure. But the idea of inclusive, so you know, I guess the argument I'd make is that. I don't know if creating separate spaces is necessarily the best path towards where we want to get to, which is in that mainstream. And, you know, by the more we make it a really, really specific skill set and then also say you need specific places for it, all we're doing is segregating. And I just don't believe that that's where... Uh, I don't believe that's the ideal outcome. I think we need to make it where it's more normal for these people to be in mainstream fitness centres. That being said, though, like, you know, we both have... There are some people whose disability is so significant that they just require a very, very specific environment, set of equipment and the rest of it. So, you know, there's a part of me that also feels like maybe that is inclusive because that's the only place they can train. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm Yeah, I think the I think the opportunity maybe to exist in whichever environment you're you feel a sense of belonging yeah. in is is what makes something inclusive. Um so the opportunity to choose, maybe. Um, and I, I won't pretend that my gym at peak hours is the best environment for someone who has sensory needs because um, there's music going, there's a lot of people moving, so that's not an inclusive environment for someone who has high sensory needs, but we're going to give them the opportunity to train earlier in the day when it's quiet if they desire. Yeah, and again, so for me, it's always just treating everyone the same unless you have a good reason not to. And so if people have very specific needs, and that's a good reason not to treat them the same. Can you explain what the role of NDIS is in Australia? Yeah. Whatever, this is the part everyone's listening for, the Australian politics. <laughs> oh, well, I think it's, it's interesting to see how other <laughs> so countries are structured. The way, the way Australia works policy-wise is that we're either operating in 1950 or 2050. Uh, we oscillate wildly between the two. So this is one of our better moments, is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So in a nutshell, what happened is, is that in 2011, no, 20, yeah, in, in about 15 years ago, we ran a review into disability services to be like, we're spending a lot of money, you know, how's it going? Are people ha satisfied with the services? And it was pretty much just a completely anonymous, like, no, this is just horrible. Like, no one's happy. Um, the way that it worked is, I imagine it's pretty similar to the way it works in the States and most Western countries, is that government provides funding to not-for-profits to provide this service to these people in these areas and these conditions, um, and then that provider then provides those services. What they found in our review, though, was that the um, 
you know, people who lived a block out weren't eligible. If your kid was a, a, a year too old, year too young, or diagnostically just separate enough that didn't qualify, you didn't get to choose what service you got. It was take it or leave it. Um, which also put providers in a position or the not-for-profits in a position where if they did a bad job, it's too bad. Like, where else are you going to go? There's no consumer rights. Like, we can do terrible work. Um, and that's just how it is. So we decided basically to flip it on its head. We use now an insurance model, um, very pioneering, both in the world and very much for Australia. And instead what we do is the government will assess everybody who wants to enter the scheme, so to speak. Um, we'll decide, okay, so Brendan has this disability. Um, that will require this amount of support. We also work out what your goals are. So you could say, I want to I want to get a job, I want to go to school, I want to be more involved in my community because I'm isolated. We'll then assign amounts of money to you achieving those goals with the level of support that you have. And then you could go and you basically use that funding to choose your own supports and to engage those peoples. And what that does is that from a charity model goes to a free market model. So it's like instead, um, not-for-profits all of a sudden have to compete They've got to advertise, they've got to provide good service, they can get fired, people can take their money where they want to go, they can pay what, for what they want. Big part of it is choice and control, which means that people with disability but the funds get to choose what they engage with um, and the supports have to be reasonable and necessary. So what that means for us is that a lot of people wanted to use their money, not just to get fit, but they also wanted to use it to engage with the community because they're isolated and they found that a gym was a really great environment for that because a lot of gyms can have their own unique culture and community, which is great. Um, they're in the same location, they're open quite a lot, they're protected from weather, typically on easy public transport lines and people go there. So that's the Australian model, plenty of floors, plenty of staff, a lot of teething stuff as well. Um, but that's the model in a nutshell. Yeah, I think it's comparable, and this isn't an area that I'm well versed in, but I think there's something called agency with choice here in the states where once someone turns 22 and they uh, age out of the school system they get to determine how they want to allocate their funding yeah. uh, so many many people just choose to go to a, a dayhab program but others choose to apply their their uh, resources or their funding elsewhere um, maybe they pay for a job coach to get employed somewhere or they some people pay for their gym membership with that funding so um, yeah, I wonder if that becomes more so the standard at some point, or even whether it's better to single out one or allow choice. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. So one of, the, one of the arguments the government had for it at the time is that it's sort of, it's, it's Keynesian in its approach in that it's something that, it, it, all the money goes back into the economy and grows industry. You know what I mean? It grows innovation, it grows high technology and the rest of it. So, you know, they reckon that in the NDIS, like every dollar spent, it's like $7 coming out of it, essentially, because it's providing employment, opportunity, you know, services, IP and the rest of it. So, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very cool. Um, but it, it very, very. It's also a multi-billion dollar national government <laughs> scheme addressing a insanely complicated topic um, so it's about as good as a government can ever do that. <laughs> How much of um, We Flex Academy did you develop? Um, most of it, pretty much all of it. Most. So, and more recently, you've stepped away from We Flex into a different position. Um, what led you to do so, and maybe why? How have your goals evolved over the last few years that led to that point? So, sort of WeFlex. WeFlex was very much a passion project for me, which I was really, really excited about. <clears throat> but as a founder, you know, I built WeFlex on the back of a very of my personal story with my brother and my dad. And you know, one of my biggest fears was you don't want to be um, the founder that is being rolled out to every event, telling the same story year after year after year, because after a while you kind of get in the way a little bit. Um, you also can sort of, it can become at risk as well as becoming a cult of that person and the brand sort of suffering or becoming second. Um, so for me, you know, we were sort of redoing our leadership, redoing the board. And I was like, you know what, like, you know, I've given as much of my DNA into this business as possible. Um, now's a good time where I can sort of slink out the back and it can manage itself and go on to better things. And the reason, the big, big reason why is because it's a storytelling organization and it has to tell other stories and it needs more stories to tell and it just doesn't need me to do that. Um, so walked away, of course, that 
is you know pretty intense experience um which you know i sort of took about two months off just sort of staring into the abyss just like wondering what the hell i'm going to do next didn't really think of my next thing but i realized though that supporting the fitness industry and health and wellness industries in particular to become more inclusive and accessible is a pretty mammoth undertaking and i was like there's so much work here to do i want to keep doing that and you know i spent a few years specializing in it i may as well um, continue on that journey. So at the moment I'm working with a lot of peak bodies and big brands over here, supporting them just to, again, incrementally increase and improve their accessibility and their inclusion. Um, working on accessibility tools, which I'm really passionate about. I know we've spoken about in the past the notion that accessibility isn't a binary and it's not even a gradient. Um, you can be super accessible for one type of disability type and very inaccessible to another. So instead, I think it's about migrating to a badge system. You can be sensory, very sen very sensory, sensory accessible, very wheelchair inaccessible, um, but that's okay as long as you communicate it, um, and then people can sort of opt in and opt out of where they can fit in. Um, as well as continuing on the education as well. I just don't think you can have too much education in this space. Yeah, absolutely. I think education is one of the biggest barriers not only for fitness professionals but for the general public in terms of uh understanding appreciating and including disability further um yeah just i guess if you're tackling these bigger projects did you did you think you could stay under the guise of WeFlex and address these things or did it have to be separate no, because to some extent WeFlex is a business and it needed to focus its attention on its main mission which is just bringing on as many clients as possible, matching them with as many fitness professionals across Australia as possible, and supporting that dynamic relationship to thrive moving forward. All these other things for all these other passion projects, I guess, the shiny things I got distracted by um, and I really wanted to pursue. So it's sort of now a bit more of a advocacy bigger picture space while Reflex really starts to just refine doing what it does best, and that is meet onboarding clients with disability, matching them with personal trainers that are suited to them, training that personal trainer to meet their needs, matching them, and then coordinating their endorse payments from there. Yeah, I wonder how many different projects and interests of mine can fit underneath the AdaptX umbrella and whether some of them need to be separate and my gym separate. My gym's a for-profit entity unified, and then AdaptX was our educational branch, but... Now there's the podcast, then there's the research projects, there's accessibility renovations for fitness facilities. It's like, I guess how I guess how do you know which one stays with one organization, which one goes elsewhere, um, and maybe how do you like take off the blinders and realize like I'm the one holding the organization back yeah. from accomplishing what it needs to accomplish. It's hard to let go. It's really difficult. Um, especially when, you know, I'm sure like me, you you were also started on your own, screaming into the void, <laughs> you know, at night. Yeah, night s still, scre still screaming into the void often. <laughs> it's just like, oh, and like, you know, especially when, when you're in a pioneering space, and I'd argue that inclusive fitness is, it's, I think it's, it's that nice the beginning phase. I think in 10 years' time, the conversation is going to be a lot more evolved, a lot more common, which is great. I think both of us want that, you know, in a nutshell, but when you're kind of at the at the front of doing it, you know, it sounds really cool, but it's not because there's no one to steal from, no one to copy from. You're working everything out for yourself and everyone's looking to you to work it out too. And it's just, so you just spend all these nights just like, how the hell am I going to make this work? Like no one's done what Weflex did, right? So I've got, I had to work out everything, just like scribbling on whiteboards all night until I work it out. You make all the mistakes, you know, to get there. It's really tough um, because you're so committed, you're so attached to it, to then the idea that other people can now pick up where you left off. It doesn't have to be Brendan solving it. You can hire you know, someone else who's just as capable of solving it as you are. It's hard to let go and then to step back and to give yourself permission to do other things. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's like getting out of a marriage to some extent. That was, that was one of the biggest challenges with my brick-and-mortar facility was it was becoming my gym and that yeah. uh that kind of took all of my trainers and automatically put them on a lower tier people would come in work with one of the trainers and be like oh could i ask brendan a question yeah it's like no they're they're perfectly capable and so we're, we're at a great point now where 
all of our coaches are, are well respected and, and knowledgeable um, amongst our membership base but it's like the hardest thing was I basically just had to stop and it felt it felt like abrupt to a degree and I, I still feel guilty when I'm not out there when I haven't seen a member for a couple of weeks because I'm not here at a time that they typically train uh, but it was like a it was a necessary step towards becoming unified health and performance, not becoming Brandon's gym. Yeah, absolutely, dude. Like, so it was really funny. I remember, when I, especially when I first started out, I was talking to a mate of mine who had just given birth, and we were both complaining, basically, about me and the startup staff who had the baby. And I'm not saying it's the same as having a baby, but what I'm saying, though, is, is that the complaints are very similar because we were both saying the same thing. I'm always tired. I always feel guilty. I can't take breaks. And when I do take a break, I feel bad for taking a break, and then I don't actually get the benefit of the break then I come back just as tired. You know what I mean? Like, I, I want this to be independent of me, but I can't handle the abandonment of it. When it does leave me, it does its own thing. I want to be there for every second of it. Um, um, my mate came out laughing, going, you two sound exactly the same at the moment. So, <laughs> that was like my, I guess my goals too with the gym have evolved a little bit towards, um, yeah, like I get two boys under two years old and I want to make yeah. sure that I don't miss things over the next four or five years but at the same time i love working and i love the diversity of the projects that i'm working on to the point where i think if you gave me the option to hang out for a few hours or work on something i would choose the latter and i don't know if that's a bad thing or not um it is what it is because people are i mean you always hear oh you got to relax you got to do this you got to do that but I always feel better <laughs> if I'm get if I'm getting something done. I'm the same. I don't deal well with yeah. relaxation or nothing. Yeah, but I don't, but but it's like it's been conditioned to, and I'm not promoting like a hustle culture. I'll never no. really boast about that stuff. But I don't think necessarily the desire to work a lot and take on projects like this is inherently a bad thing. Maybe sometimes people want to feel better about themselves, so they're like, "You shouldn't work so much." Uh, so it's uh, I don't know it's been a it's been an interesting thing to juggle. It's a deeply personal journey going through it. You yeah. learn so much about yeah. yourself. For me, it was always about I wanted the brand to mean more than me. I wanted the brand to be something that people actually cared about, that people bought into. I was so passionate about the brand being. So the reason why it was WeFlex was because I wanted the we to be about we're all founders, we're all the people involved, like it's all of us, it's a movement, not so much a, a company. Um, I wanted to make it cool enough that our clients would want to buy the gear and wear it and wear merch and represent it and actually be proud of it. For it to be a cool fitness brand, not a, you know, because sometimes, I'm sure you've seen it yourself, like... There's all these super depressing names for businesses with disabilities, and it's like, you know what I mean? They use the word special way too much. I think it's super. <laughs> I, feel, I feel for Special Olympics because there's so much history attached to it, so I feel like they get, they get a, a, a pass. They get pass. But, but, but new, new companies coming out, it's just like, oh, special fit buddies or some shit like that. It's like, fuck. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've got a younger brother on the spectrum, but, you know, he's ASD1. He, he's... he's um, he knows where he is and he knows what's happening around him and being involved in those programs just makes him cringe so hard and I just never wanted that for our clients and so you want to create a brand but then it has to be the brand not you and so it's about I'm going to do everything I can with my force of personality or whatever to get it to a point where others can start holding it up and then I've just got to accept that I've got to step away and just hope it continues to do the right thing. But I, at the same time, the idea that it has to be me or it's going to fail without me is not the point. You've got to build it to sustain. So you've got to build it with leaving it in mind. And so that's why I had to leave. How did you brand the new consulting project? I just wanted to sound more professional, so I decided to call it Inclusive AF. <laughs> um, again, like, you know, I think it's about... Um, I think there's there's almost a weird taboo about having like cool branding in the disability space. It has to be super G-rated, Mickey Mouse sort of shit, which I don't like. Um, so for me, it was just about making it a bit more fun, a bit more trendy. Um, and, you know, everyone thinks that AF stands for AF, but it's actually accessible and fun. 
That's what it's done. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Interpret it as you wish. <laughs> and if you're the data, that's on you, not me, Brandon. So, <laughs> so right. it's like, you know, and, and what, what I want aim to do, though, is get to a point where I can, you know, gym, if, if, if gyms want a standard to set themselves to an disability inclusion, then I can give them a bad saying they're inclusive AF. Exclusive <laughs> <laughs> what is the delineation between doing good for a business and making money? Um, I think it's about, for me, yeah, it's hard. Um, you know, my background is in the not-for-profit sector, so I was sort of almost indoctrinated with the notion that to make money is greedy or is in somehow a contradiction to your values, um, which has taken a long time to shake. Um, I think that, you know, it's, if, if I was to say, you know, and Dan Pilata has amazing talks on this too. I'm sure you know who he is. So, you know, the notion that if I was if I was here as a banker and I'm telling you I made a quarter mil last year, you wouldn't think anything of it. You'd, but if I'm here saying I work in disability and I made half a mil last year, all of a sudden it's just that little suspicion on my ethics, my values, why am I doing this? And I just think it's crappy. Like if we want the best minds and great talent and to make the industry more stronger, then there needs to be money in it essentially and I think treating people with disabilities like they could not or should not ever spend any of their own money limited though it may be on good services I think is also super condescending and charitable as well right so yeah. I believe you can make money as long as you're providing the right the subsequent or the appropriate amount of value along with it when I work with yeah. businesses I charge what I think is a pretty fair amount but I'm giving them a lot of value that's going to help them make that back and way more over the long term by having clients um you know, so that's how I sort of justify it. I'm giving myself a bit more permission to just look after myself because otherwise I'll just be paycheck to paycheck my entire life, creating value for everybody but myself. Yeah, that's very fair. I know in Pilato's um, TED Talk, he talks about how, like, how is a nonprofit going to attract yeah. Yeah, the, the brightest minds if they can just go work somewhere else, make 250000 donate a quarter of their salary, and be praised as a philanthropist? Like, why would they go work for a nonprofit for half the amount when they can make more and still be considered the, uh, a giving person? Yeah, exactly. The rules are weird where it's like, you can come here and work here, but you can't make money. But come and work really hard. Like, we're the only yeah. industry that asks that of people, sort of thing. But yeah. it's, it's the people who work in the industry, not so much the participants, right? It's not so much the clients. Like, again, all the co-design, none of them have a problem with it. Right, as long as you're providing good value, I will be a customer and I'll buy your services. Just do a good job, be professional, give me what I need. Like, just run a really good business, and I want you to be successful. But so yeah. it, it's more, it's not actually driven by the people that actually matter, like the customers and the end users. It's driven by just a weird, I think it's a relic of old attitudes from the charitable back in the day. Um, I think there's a lot of gatekeeping involved in it as well, where it's like, well. Brandon, unless you have family with disability, you don't get it. You get what I mean? And you can't sit with us, which I don't think is fair. It's like, no, you can just be really good at it. And again... Yeah, that, that's one of the, the things that's been tough about, um, like, the lived experience. I, I In my LinkedIn, my LinkedIn feeds a lot of people with disabilities, nothing about us without us. And I, I fully understand the the premise behind that and there should be representation in all the conversations um but sometimes it feels like a little bit of an echo chamber um they're just like shouting to each other and they're all confirming their own biases but they're like but you need to reach you need to reach the key stakeholders if you want to make change you need to reach the businesses that aren't inclusive that aren't accessible and the way of doing so i don't think is to chastise them for currently not being accessible no I sometimes it seems like there's a lot of critiques um and that's not really going to incentivize anyone from diving into this quote-unquote world of inclusion i just I, i'm not convinced that you can sort of shame and bully your way to a better place or a better world yeah um i think what happens is that you sort of just people just try to it's like people just become the kid in the back of the class he just doesn't want to get noticed kind of thing, they just want to float through and just avoid anything and they don't want to even try. Um, and, you know, instead what we should be doing is just, you know, and that's the hard part of being an advocate, right, is that you have to have the same dumb conversation with people all the time. But 
not make them feel stupid for it, thank them for asking the question, give them useful advice that can make them a little bit better or help them decide if they want to be a little bit better. Um, but also have the conversation, you know, so I, I do, I've done workshops for some of the bigger bit brands here. One of the things I say straight up is like, you're allowed to have an opinion. You're allowed to use words if you're not sure if they're good or not, I'll tell you, but I'm not going to physically assault you. If you say a word that's maybe not proper nomenclature anymore, like just, and you know, and one thing that's really interesting is, is that all the time I've spent working with co-design and I had employees, most like half the employ my workforce was people with disability. Um, or psychosocial disability and all of them always reiterated it's like the words aren't anywhere near as important as the meaning behind it like I've, I've had conversations with people where I've said what I've now realised was the, what we don't say anymore I used to say hearing impaired quite a lot although you should say hard of hearing now but I never got jumped on or attacked for it they're just like oh we say that now but I know that you mean well like I can tell you're just using the words um, you know and I think we should not shy away from using the word disability like one time I saw my favorite I love this so I watched I watched a woman <laughs> try and talk to this other lady who was in a wheelchair and she was so painfully trying to not say the word wheelchair and disability to this person when explaining her describing her condition and I just watched her for like three real-time minutes which felt like a year dance around trying to find the words to say it without saying wheelchair and disability and the woman in the wheelchair just got the shit and was just like I'm in a wheelchair mm-hmm. Why are you making me awkward? <laughs> like, yeah. What a dirty word. That, uh, that person that I connected you with a few weeks ago, um, the former intern of mine who's now in Australia um, studying for school, she, she texted uh, me and a, a friend of ours, and she was like, is this conversation happening in the U.S.? And she's like, we just had a lecture on person with disability versus person with a disability uh, one being temporary, one being permanent. And I was like, oh, like, I don't think that's really happening. And the more conversations I have with people with disabilities, a lot of them don't mind being called disabled. Um, again, it's like the connotation of the word. Are you putting them down? Do you even need to specify that they're a disabled person? Or, I don't know, sometimes I put that like language and the inconsistencies and the potential fear of being critiqued for a lack of accessibility, I think is that that uh, concoction of fears is what prevents people from even making the effort to interact with someone with a disability. Yeah, instead of just talking to them directly. So it's yeah. a little echo chamber where they're just, they're just um, talking to themselves. Um, I think, and again, it's just never come up to me as actually important. Like there's a few, there's these words that grow out, you should learn them definitely and stay in touch, but people within the community will tell you that and they're just happy to be spoken to, like just talk to them directly. So cut out, at the, it's just people without disability in the industry just taking up all the oxygen, yes. um, you know. So again, one thing I loved about your intro is like, you don't talk on behalf of, I think that's really important. And that's something I teach all the brands. It's like, have an opinion on fitness, have an opinion on inclusion and accessibility, have a philosophy, just don't talk for them. But if you, t- if you, if you have a customer with a disability and they tell you something, you can share that. Like you can, you can report back conversations you've actually had. Even better is if you highlight or let them say it in their own words, but that's what you should do. Just go straight to the source. That's all you have to do. Yeah. That's what I've loved about this podcast. I mean, this is going to be, uh, episode 33 by the time it publishes. And, um, I find myself when I'm making content, writing pieces, referencing things that guests told me um brad mccannell from the rick hansen foundation talking about accessibility and he's redesigned airports and wow he talks about he talks about how accessibility can benefit some people and hurt others they put carpet down the middle of the runway uh which reduced some of the hearing and the echoes for people who are hard of hearing but at the same time it made it hard for wheelchair users to navigate the airport he's like accessibility isn't like a checkbox. It's not a state of being. It's a commitment to uh, addressing people's needs. Uh, so just stuff like that. Like, but hearing that from the individual with disability weighs a whole lot more than me saying it. Yeah, yeah. It, so that being a platform, 
Yeah, I love that. Accessibility is a state of mind. It's like, yeah. um, there's amazing, uh, she's, she's no longer with us, God rest her soul, but we had an amazing disability advocate in Australia called Stella Young. And she has this great point though, where she was like, you see all these um, memes and posts about the only disability in life is a bad attitude. And she's like, no amount of good thing, good attitude is going to turn stairs into a ramp. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we've wrapped up most of these episodes with kind of the overarching prompt or theme of uh, what do you think needs to be done to make fitness or the fitness industry more accessible for people with disabilities? I think I, I, what I've learned is just to not overthink it and um, not be scared of it either. So if, if you if you want to get into the space, if you've just started getting into the space, it's okay to like make mistakes. Um, as long as you are trying your best, you are constantly communicating, getting feedback from the client with disability. Um, but just get stuck in, like, and just get going, and you'll just get better. I know both. I've no doubt. Me and Brendan have made all kinds of mistakes with our earlier clients in earlier days, and you just get better at it. But a lot of them are still our clients because they don't expect you to be perfect either. They just want you to try. Um, and yeah, I've I've learned a lot from you over the last couple of years too, and. That's where it's it's like tough to be, it's tough to have a a growth mindset, but also be an authority figure, a perceived authority figure. Like I'm supposed to have all the answers, but I I completely understand that I don't have any of the answers. No. So it's like it's like uh, I guess how can I how can I teach if I'm if I'm learning every conversation I have? Yeah, I I I completely rejected the term expert. I I don't even know if that's possible in this space. Um, but you know, one thing you learn is that the the education journey. So going from knowing nothing to knowing something, it it, it isn't a, it isn't up. Is that it's just a plummet because the second you start with the client, you realize all the things you didn't know you didn't know. And you're just like, oh man, I am out of my depth. And then you just start at that very bottom, the real bottom, um, and then you just you, you slowly just build your way out of it. You know what I mean? So it's tough. It's like what, what's it what's it called? The Dunning Kruger effect, where you learn a little bit and then you think you're an expert, and then the more you learn, the less you realize you know. Um, and that's kind of how this experience has been for me. And now I've made this commitment to, uh, I guess, quote unquote, like learn in public uh, through these conversations and uh through our course revisions and uh yeah it's been i think that's i guess maybe what makes the best educational experience um you can't just take my course you can't just take your course and be ready to go that's like the uh that's the ground level and then the hands-on experience is the uh is the expertise or maybe not expertise but at least the knowledge well if, if there's an expert it's the customers themselves exactly yeah that's why including their uh their voice has always been something that i've valued in, in your educational materials as well as is that co-designing piece so um tommy glad to have you in our network uh glad to have you as a friend if the audience wants to learn more about what you do or benefit from your services uh where should they find you um just inclusiveaf.com it's a <laughs> i've only just started that website so it's pretty cringy at the moment but there's a contact form i'm also just opened up my socials so linkedin instagram inclusiveaf you'll find me it's pretty um uh, it's a standout brand. <laughs> you, you'll notice it. Inclu- inclusive accessibility and fun. Inclusive. Uh, Tommy, <laughs> Tommy Trout. Um, thank you, Tommy. I um, look forward to sharing this with our listeners, and uh, I have always appreciated what you've shared with me. I appreciate you. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to the AdaptX podcast. Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about Adaptex, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptex.org. Until next Monday.